We are continuing our sermon series going through a selection of the Psalms. And our sermon text today is Psalm chapter 2. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Psalm chapter 2. After the sermon, after I close in prayer, I'm also going to take an extended time uh, to do a little bit of teaching and introduction for the Lord's Supper. So after the sermon, after I pray, I'll do that and just encourage you to hang tight um, for that. From the early stages of the church, Christians faced the threat of persecution, which we see in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the gospel was proclaimed 3,000 people heard the gospel, repented, believed, were added to the church, and the church began to grow. But immediately, there was opposition. We see in chapter 3 that Peter and John were preaching in the outer courts of the temple, and the Jewish religious leaders were not happy about it. They were not happy that they were preaching the name of Jesus and claiming that he had risen from the dead. And so they, began, so they arrested Peter and John to stop them from doing this. They were arrested and taken into custody for preaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus. And the next day, they were brought before the Jewish religious leadership in Jerusalem. And the Jewish religious leadership sought to intimidate them with threats. They said, why are you doing this? Who, who says you can do this? You need to stop doing this. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And so they sought to intimidate them. They sought to threaten them. But what stood out to them was the boldness with which Peter and John responded to them. Peter and John were not intimidated. They did not back down. They said, in essence, we're going to listen to God, not you. And we're going to keep doing what God wants us to do. And so the Jewish religious leadership at that point just threatened them And let him go. In Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 31, we read what happened after they reported what had happened uh, to their friends. So after they were released, they went to their friends, they went to their fellow believers, they told them what had happened to them, and here was the response amongst the believers. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 31. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What a wonderful prayer they prayed. What a wonderful prayer they prayed in response to this opposition, in response to this intimidation, in response to these threats. One thing that is very interesting about their prayer 
is that in verses 25 and 26, they quoted from the first couple of verses of Psalm chapter 2 and believed what was happening to them was in some way related to the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. Why did they think that? And why did they draw encouragement from that? Well, the main point of the sermon is not to answer those questions, but I do bring them up to help see that Psalm 2 is a wonderful psalm with far-reaching implications and important application for our lives, just as it did for the church in Acts chapter 4. Before I read Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 2, I'll provide you with an outline so you can know what we will be seeing in this psalm. In verses 1 through 3, we see the rebellion of the nations. In verses 4 through 6, we see the response of the Lord. In verses 7 through 9, the Davidic king speaks. And in verses 10 through 12, the rulers are warned. I'm going to read Psalm chapter 2, and I encourage you to follow along. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in in him. First, we see the rebellion of the nations. Who are these nations, peoples, kings, and rulers who rage, plot, oppose, and conspire together? Well, in order to understand who they are, we need to understand whom they are raging against. We read that they rebel against the Lord and his anointed. The Lord is Yahweh the one true living God who is the creator of everyone and everything, the holy one, the righteous judge of all the earth. And his anointed refers to his chosen king and ultimately a descendant of David who will reign in an everlasting kingdom. When we look back at the history of Israel, we see that Saul was the first king of Israel, but due to his disobedience, the Lord rejected him as king. In 1 Samuel 16, 1, we read, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? 
Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Then the Lord revealed to Samuel that he had chosen Jesse's son, David. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, we read, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. David was the Lord's anointed king. And in a few moments, we'll see how God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever. So the nations, peoples, kings, and rulers stage a rebellion against Yahweh and his chosen king, a descendant of David. During his reign over Israel, David conquered other nations who became subject to him and the people of Israel. Psalm 2 describes these Gentile nations rebelling and seeking their independence from the Davidic king. As king, David's task was to rule Israel and be faithful to the covenant that the Lord had established with his people. We read about the covenant the Lord established with his people at Mount Sinai. God, in his grace and his mercy, according to his steadfast love, redeemed his people out of bondage and slavery and oppression in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He brought them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant relationship with them. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he promised to do good to them, to bless them. And he called upon them to be obedient to him and faithful to him and to worship him alone and to obey his laws. And by walking in faithful obedience to the covenant, God's people would enjoy God's blessing. They would enjoy his presence among them. And he would richly bless them, richly provide for them. And he would protect them from all their enemies. It was an act of love and kindness whereby the Lord established his covenant relationship with his people. And as king, as representative of the people, David was to lead the people into covenant faithfulness. He was to lead them to be faithful to the covenant the Lord had established, to apply the law, the Torah, to, to this people, including those from four nations who were now joined to the people of God. One of the things we see in the Old Testament is that people from other nations could join themselves to the people of God and enjoy the blessings of the covenant. We see this happen with individuals and with groups of people. So one notable example of an individual would be Rahab in the story of Joshua, when God led his people in the conquest of Canaan, whereby he gave them the land that he promised to give them. Jericho was the first city that they attacked. And there was uh, a woman in there named Rahab who was of the city who by faith joined herself to God's people. So rather than being destroyed with those who opposed God's people, she joined herself to God's people and the covenant and therefore took refuge among the covenant people of God. And so we see these Gentile nations, these people who, apart from Israel, we see that they had the opportunity to join themselves to the people of God, to take refuge amongst God's covenant people, and to enjoy the blessings of this covenant that God established with his people. But the nations and peoples in these verses 
We're not taking refuge in Yahweh and his covenant community, but we're rebelling against him. John Collins writes, for the Gentiles to rebel against the heir of David is to rebel against the Lord who installed him. It is also to cut themselves off from their only hope of knowing the one true God. This was their opportunity. God revealed himself through his people. And for anyone to know him, they would have to join this covenant community and submit to him. This was their hope. This was their opportunity to know God. But by rebelling against God and his anointed king, they cut themselves off from knowing God and enjoying the blessings that come from taking refuge in him. Rather than embracing God's law and his anointed king, they reject his authority and law, seeking to rule themselves independently of him. Unlike the blessed man from Psalm 1, who delighted in and meditated on God's law, the nations in rebellion viewed God's law as restrictive and oppressive. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that seem to reflect the ways of the world? Doesn't the world view God's laws as restrictive and oppressive? We live in a world in rebellion against the Lord. And the world has been in rebellion against the Lord ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord and sought to break free from his rule in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve. He created a beautiful world that he called good. He gave them a place to live, to enjoy where they could live in his presence, enjoying all the benefits that come with it as they rightly lived under his rule, obeying his good command. But what did they do? They said, we want to decide for ourselves what is good. We don't want to submit to your rule. We want to live independently of you, and we want to choose for ourselves what is good and evil. And so they rebelled against the Lord. They disobeyed his command. Their sin was an act of treason. And ever since then, the world has been in rebellion against the Lord. We continue to see this in our world today. We see many examples today of the world regarding God's law, his commands, as being restrictive and oppressive. We see countless examples of people seeking to break free from God's rule and live independently of him. And as we live in a world that is continually seeking to break free from the Lord, judging his ways as restrictive and oppressive, we need to remind ourselves of the goodness of God and the goodness of his rule and reign over us. Friends, God's ways are good. God's laws are good. His commands are good. They are good, and they are good for us. The way of blessing does not come from seeking independence from him, 
from seeking independence from his ways, his laws, his commands. The way of blessing comes through embracing his ways, his laws, his commands. That is where we enjoy life and a life abundantly. We need to remind ourselves in this as we live in a world that wants to break free of God and disregard his commands. We need to remind ourselves God's commands are good and they are good for us. Verses one through three describe the rebellion of the nations. In verses four through six, we see the response of the Lord. What's the Lord's perspective on this? Is he dismayed? Is he anxious? Is he worried that his plans will be thwarted? No. The raging nations, the plotting people, the opposing kings, and the conspiring rulers do not trouble the Lord in the least. He is not worried in the slightest. The Lord laughs at the notion that they can succeed in opposing him. No matter how powerful a nation or ruler is, their power is nothing compared to the Lord. But his laughter turns into righteous anger. Why? Because the Lord's plan was established. His, de- his decision to use a descendant of David to fulfill his purpose was firm. He set his king on Zion, his holy hill. The decision was made. He revealed his will. His choice was made known, and and rebellion against his king was tantamount to rebellion against Yahweh. David Gunderson writes, The wicked may be kings on earth, but God has installed his own king from heaven. Zion is the idealized vision of Israel's capital city, Jerusalem. It It is the city where God dwells, His king reigns. His perfect law goes forth and the nations gather to worship. This is God's glorious plan. And his plan has been established to oppose his plan, his ways, his will is futile. We cannot ignore the wrath of God. The Lord will not tolerate rebellion against him. And the nations, peoples, kings, and rulers who persist in rebellion will experience the just wrath of God. In his classic work, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. The Lord's wrath is the right response of the righteous judge of all the earth. It is the right and necessary response of the Holy One. He must respond in wrath to evil, to wickedness, to rebellion against him. We cannot ignore the wrath of God. The wrath of God is his right Reaction, right? And necessary reaction. And what we read here is a sobering reminder of God's judgment. We see many examples in Scripture of God rendering judgments at various points in time in human history. And then in the New Testament, we are warned repeatedly of a coming final judgment. 
God's judgments in human history point forward to the day where there will be a final judgment, a once-for-all judgment of all mankind. Jesus warned about this repeatedly. There will come a day when there will be a final judgment where everyone will have to give an account before the Lord. No one will escape the judgment of the Lord. So far, we've seen the rebellion of the nations and the Lord's response. In verses 7 through 9, the Davidic king speaks. The Lord's anointed king now speaks for himself and recounted the Lord's decree. A little background here will be helpful for us. In 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, we read what the Lord decreed to David. Here's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that, that to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In these verses, we see things that are promised for the near future and things that are promised for the distant future. Did you see in verse 14 how God said he would take an heir of David as a son? The Lord also promised that his throne would be established forever. Some of the things that he described here were fulfilled through his son, David's son, Solomon, but some of them were clearly not fulfilled through his son Solomon, but looked forward to a future king. In Psalm 2, we see that the Lord promised to make the nations an inheritance of the Davidic king. And one thing we need to remember is that David was a descendant of Abraham. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God made a promise to Abraham when he said, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will bless. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how would that be the case? How would all the peoples, all the nations of the earth be blessed through Abraham? John Collins notes that throughout the Old Testament scriptures, there's an expectation that eventually all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's family. 
which will come about when God makes the Gentile people subject to the Messianic king. We'll see that. We'll see this at the end of Psalm 2. But in these verses, we see that the rule of the king will be severe toward those who do not submit. He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. The destruction of those who oppose the king will be swift and decisive. Now we turn to verses 12, 10 through 12, where the rulers are warned. In light of God's anger and wrath and in light of the coming destruction of those who rebel against Yahweh and oppose God's king, a warning is issued. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Now is the time. He is saying, now is the time for you to reconsider your ways. Now is the time to rethink your course of action. Now is the time to see the error of your plans. Be warned. If you continue in this path, if you continue in your rebellion, this will not end well for you. You are being warned. Rather than raging, plotting, opposing, and conspiring, you need to repent and serve the Lord with fear and trembling. They are called upon to honor God's anointed king, respect his authority, serve him loyally, and rejoice in his rule and reign. One of the things we repeatedly see in Scripture is the Lord calling people to repentance. The Lord has revealed himself. He has revealed his ways. He has given his law, his good commands. And when people rebel against him, he warns them. He calls them to repent lest they face judgment. And here we see this taking place. Be warned, you who would rebel. Psalm 2 ends with a beautiful statement and provides a better way for the nations, peoples, kings, and rulers. Rather than rebelling, we read, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The way of blessing, the way of life is not to rebel against Yahweh and his anointed king, but to take refuge refuge in him. The way of blessing, the way of God's favor is to take refuge in his king. The peoples and rulers could go one of two ways. They could rebel against the Lord and his anointed or they could take refuge in him. Those who take refuge are saved and blessed, and those who rebel perish in their way. Again, we see this pattern in Scripture. For example, consider the days of Noah. The Lord warned of a coming judgment. 
those who rebelled against the Lord were swept away in the judgment that was the flood. But those who took refuge in the ark were saved and blessed. Think about the judgment that the Lord rendered in Egypt, where he put to death all the firstborn in Egypt. He rendered a judgment. But those who took refuge under the blood of the lamb were saved and were blessed. We see this pattern. God renders a judgment. Those who rebel against him experience his wrath. But those who take refuge in him and in his ways are blessed and are saved. The Lord's anointed king is a terror to those who oppose him, but a refuge to those who serve him. Where does Psalm 2 lead us? Who is the Lord's anointed? Who is the heir of David to whom the Lord has said, you are my son? Who is the king whom the Lord has established and whose kingdom will last forever? Mark's gospel, which was likely the earliest written, begins with a startling declaration. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. When Jesus began his public ministry, he made a startling declaration when he said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Greek term Christ comes from the Hebrew title Messiah, which comes from the Hebrew word for anointed. The Gospels make an astonishing claim. Jesus is God's anointed king. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen and anointed king. He is the divine son and the Davidic son, son of God, son of David. It is not surprising then that when he came into the world, the rulers raged, plotted, opposed, and conspired against him. Sadly, rulers within Israel conspired with rulers from a pagan nation to put Jesus to death. In John 19, 14 to 16, we read, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. Oh, what an indictment. They rejected him as their king. They raged against him and conspired to kill him. They thought that killing him would put an end to him. Oh, but the Lord laughed. Their opposition was futile. Killing Jesus would not put an end to the Lord's established plan. Their opposition would not succeed. 
God vindicated Jesus, his established king, by raising him from the dead. He conquered death. Opposition to God's anointed king is futile. He will succeed. God will accomplish all of his good purposes. Praise the Lord. Jesus rose from the grave, and for 40 days, he appeared to hundreds of people, proving that he is alive, proving that he is God's forever king. And then he ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. His kingdom is advancing as he is gathering people from all nations. He is the descendant of Abraham and the one through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He is a descendant of David and the throne of his kingdom is established forever. Blessed are all who take refuge in Jesus, God's anointed and established and forever king. What does this mean for us? First, take refuge. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you to take refuge in Jesus. You have one of two ways you can go. That's it. There are only two options. You will either rebel against God's chosen and anointed King Jesus, or you will submit to him and serve him and experience life. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to believe in Jesus, to trust in him, to submit yourself wholly to him, to receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. Life, joy, and peace is found in Jesus Christ, God's chosen anointed king, and it is only found in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, Believe in Jesus and be saved. If, you're not a, if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you to continue to go to Jesus. Continue to go to Jesus, taking refuge in him, knowing that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he is with you, and that he is working all things for your good, even the bad things, even the hard things in your life that his plans for his people will not fail. He will accomplish all of his good purposes. If you're a Christian, take refuge continually in Jesus. Go to him. Second, understand the times. When Jesus began his public ministry, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Indeed, The kingdom of God broke into this world through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. God's king came to the world and God's kingdom broke into the world. But we know that his kingdom has not yet been fully consummated. We look forward to the day when his kingdom will be fully consummated, when he will finally conquer all of his enemies, when he will finally do away with all sin and rebellion, where we will be welcomed into his kingdom once and for all, where we will receive glorified bodies completely free from sin, and we will enjoy him in his perfect kingdom where there will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more sin, no more death for all 
of eternity. We look forward to the consummation of his kingdom, but we know that has not yet taken place. And therefore, we continue to live in a world that's in rebellion against the Lord. These are the times we live in. And we need to understand the times. The nations, peoples, kings, and rulers continue to rage, plot, oppose, and conspire against God's anointed king. And who experiences that? Well, we see in the book of Acts that the church does. Those who belong to the king. The church has felt the rage of the nations throughout the centuries. Christians in parts of the world where persecution is severe feel this more acutely. According to Open Doors, approximately 312 million Christians around the world face very high or extreme levels of persecution. Hundreds of millions of Christians face very high levels of persecution today, meaning their, ways, their way of life is threatened. There's the possibility of imprisonment, losing a job, losing a house, being put to death. This happens today. The nations are raging today. We need to understand the times in which we live. Third, we need to engage in the mission. The revelation of Jesus as God's anointed king fuels the mission of the church. We live in this period of time where we look forward to the consummation of the kingdom of God. But we know that the nations are raging. Yet this is the time. This is the opportunity for people to repent, as God has said. This is the period of time where people have the chance to take heed, to hear the Lord's warning. And so we want to be those who participate in the work of the Lord, calling people to repent to recognize that the, the, the time is short, the day of judgment will come. Now is the time to repent, to believe, to take refuge in the king. And so Psalm 2 compels us to engage in the mission. We as a church are to engage in the work of the great commission that Jesus gave to the church after his resurrection and before his ascension, where he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is gathering a people for himself from all the nations. He will have an inheritance from all the nations. And we have the joy of participating in that work, primarily in our own community but even through wonderful partnerships that we have with other brothers and sisters in Christ and churches and ministries around the world. We have the joy of participating in gospel work around the world where the Lord is gathering a people for himself from all nations. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Listen carefully to these words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart by the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Oh, this is the mission of the church, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, including us who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So we take refuge in Jesus, understanding the times, engaging in the mission. And finally, we do all this with boldness. When the Christians were persecuted in Acts chapter 4, when they felt the rage of the nations as those who belong to God's chosen and anointed king, they took comfort and were encouraged by Psalm chapter 2. And what did they pray? In Acts 4.29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What a prayer. What an amazing prayer. They didn't say, Lord, look upon their threats and shut them down. They didn't say, Lord, look upon their threats and silence them. The Lord will do that. They, knew, they know that the Lord will ultimately conquer his enemies. But what was their focus? What was their prayer? Lord, look upon their threats and give us boldness. Give us boldness to continue to speak your word faithfully. Though the nations rage, grant us boldness to speak your word, the truth of the gospel, which is the power of salvation for all who believe. Well, brothers and sisters, I pray that Psalm 2 will encourage us and strengthen us to take refuge in Jesus knowing that blessing comes, is found in him. I hope we will understand the times in which we live and therefore engage in the mission that Christ has given the church with boldness. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm chapter 2. What an encouragement to us. What a blessing. We pray that you give us a deeper knowledge and understanding of your word, that we might be encouraged and built up in the faith, that we might take refuge in Jesus, finding comfort in him. Lord, we pray that we will understand the times and therefore engage in your mission with boldness. We thank you, we praise you for Jesus, your anointed and chosen king. Jesus is our king. We pray that we will joyfully and fully submit to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the past month or so, we have called a lot of attention to the Lord's Supper and the instructions we give before we partake of the Lord's Supper. And what we believe is that the Lord's Supper is for baptized believers and ordinarily for baptized believers who are members of a faithful gospel-proclaiming church. 
Jesus is the head of the church, and he rules his church through his word. And as elders, our aim is to lead the church into submission to Jesus by diligently studying, teaching, and applying his word to our lives and to our congregation. And one of the things we need to do a better job of teaching is the relationship between baptism, the Lord's Supper, and membership, which all represent commands of Christ. And we believe that we need to be careful not to separate the commands of Christ, whereby we encourage obedience to baptism and the Lord's Supper without requiring obedience to the loving relational accountability commanded by Christ, which we call membership. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are acts of individual believers, but they are not only acts of individual believers. When we as a church baptize someone and invite them to participate in the Lord's Supper, we too are making a positive statement or an affirmation. We are saying that we as a church believe this person to be a Christian and a member of the new covenant community. And we don't want to separate the affirmation of the new covenant, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper, from the accountability of the new covenant community, which is membership. We believe that separating these things runs the risk of undermining Christ's design for the church. Now, the Bible provides a wonderful, full picture of membership whereby Christians love one another as Christ has commanded and seek to apply all the one another commands of Scripture in the context of a committed relationship with the local church. It is a wonderful, beautiful picture. And if you have not taken time to study the one another commands of Scripture, we have this on the little table in the back corner there. And I encourage you to grab one of those. This teaches on the one another commands, meaning these are the commands that God gives to Christians regarding how they are to relate to one another within the context of a local church. And so it is wonderful instructions. We receive instructions like be at peace with each other, love one another, be joined to one another, be devoted to one another. Things like rejoice with one another, weep with one another. Again, the Bible provides a wonderful full picture of the relationships that Christians are to commit to within the context of a local church. And one of the things that we're commanded to do is to watch out for one another. We love each other, and therefore we watch out for one another and hold one another accountable. And so we recently preached through the book of Hebrews. We saw this, for example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, where the author of Hebrews commanded these Christians. He said, take care, brothers. Brothers, of course, referring to fellow Christians, which would include brothers and sisters in Christ. Take care, brothers, lest there be in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, we need to watch out for one another. Why? Because there's always the possibility that we can be deceived. We're all susceptible to being self-deceived. You're susceptible to it. I'm susceptible to it. And so one of the reasons that we are to be committed to a local church is to watch out for one another, 
and to hold one another accountable in love so that we, do not, we are not self-deceived. And because of that possibility, because we all face these tempt, uh, temptations to wander from the Lord, to be self-deceived, one of the important elements of membership in a local church is the relational accountability commanded by Christ in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, which says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This passage refers to the accountability commanded by Christ, the corrective discipline commanded by Christ for every Christian to be practiced in a committed relationship within the context of a local church. Now, we don't want to reduce membership to the corrective discipline Jesus commanded and prescribed in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, because as I said, the Bible gives a much, much fuller picture than this, but it is a necessary and essential part of membership as this is the command of Christ for every Christian. And so those whom the church affirms through baptism and the Lord's Supper are meant to be accountable to the church as Jesus commanded, which we apply through membership. Now, as we think about these things, something we need to be aware of is the culture we live in and how it might affect us. What do I mean by that? Our culture places a high value on autonomous individualism. Do you know what that means? Autonomous individualism. Each person gets to decide for him or herself what is good and right. Each person gets to decide for him or herself who I want to be, how I want to live. In other words, there is a desire for autonomy, independence, which did not work out very well, as we have seen, for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and for humanity ever since then. One writer says, individualism is not rooted in being anti-community. Everyone loves the idea of community. Rather, it roots in being anti-authority. I will gladly hang out with you as long as you don't tell me who I have to be or what I have to do. This is the world we live in. This is the air we breathe. But we need to push against this. The world wants affirmation without accountability. We need to push against this in our pursuit of biblical Christianity so that we honor Christ's design for the church. 
We also think it's important for us to understand that many churches and traditions hold baptism, the Lord's Supper, and membership together. In other words, this is not a new interpretation of Scripture. For example, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith from 1853, which is highly regarded and widely used today among churches with whom we are like-minded, states, we believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to new life that it is a prerequisite to the privileges of church relation and to the Lord's Supper in which the members of the church by the sacred use of bread and wine are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that we are teaching on this because of what churches and traditions have taught in practice. As I said, we want to be faithful to Christ and honor his design for the church by rightly applying his word. But I do think it's helpful to point this out just to see that we're not coming up with a new or unusual interpretation of scripture. Sadly, I think many churches, including us, have not done enough to teach on this, which is why we are investing a lot of time and energy on the subject now and will continue to do so going forward. If you are not a member, we will unpack this in much greater detail in our membership class in the coming weeks. And so we would love for you to participate in that. Again, that begins this coming Sunday. It's going to be five weeks. You can register online. You can use the QR code in the back to register for the class. We would love to have you participate on that, where we will teach on these things in greater detail. If you are a member of this church, we are also taking time to unpack what I am saying right now in greater detail in something that we will send out this week, Lord willing, in video and written form. So we are taking a lot of time as an elder team to pray, study, discuss, write, revise. And we humbly ask you as the members of the church to avail yourself to these things that we share with you. Something we want to clarify is that a person does not have to be 18 years old to become a member of this church. But we do want each person to go through the membership process to become a member. Of course, questions arise, when and how do you receive someone into membership under the age of 18? And these are important questions. And by God's grace, we have relationships with many pastors and churches around the country who are similarly holding baptism, Lord's Supper, and membership together. And I've given much thought about baptizing and receiving someone under 18 into membership. And we have received many resources providing guidance on the subject. And we, as an elder team, desire to provide uh, guidance for our church. But while we spend time on that, we are temporarily adopting a helpful resource from Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, as the guidance we are providing to our church on the matter until we can produce our own guidelines as necessary. The document is entitled Childhood Baptism and Church Membership. You can grab a copy in the back of the room, but we will also be emailing that out this week um, in electronic form. So we have some copies. If we run out, you can ask Nate to print you a new one. Um, but again, you can grab one of those in the back. We also have the document that we've written on the Lord's Supper in the back of the room. You can grab that as well. So we encourage you to take a look at that. Or if you want it in electronic form, you can send us an email. So with those things in mind, we turn to the Lord's Supper. And one of the important reasons we make a connection between a formal commitment to a local church and the Lord's Supper 
is because the Lord's Supper is not a private individual act of worship. Rather, we are to take the Lord's Supper when we come together to demonstrate our unity in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we read, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. In other words, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are demonstrating our unity with other believers. The unity we demonstrate through the Lord's Supper is meant to reflect the unity we are committed to pursuing throughout the week. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, we read, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. We bring this up to call attention to the weight that the Lord places on the Lord's Supper. In light of the fact that the Lord places weight on this, we too want to rightly place weight on this and think about this and reflect on this. So this verse speaks to the necessity of the one who takes the Lord's Supper to solemnly examine oneself and the necessity of being mindful of how he or she relates to the rest of the body. And for this reason, we believe that Lord's Supper is for baptized believers who are members of this church, or if you are a visiting member of another church, or if you desire to become a member here, but have not had the opportunity to complete the membership process. If you are hearing this and thinking, maybe I shouldn't take the Lord's Supper because I need to think through some of these things, that's okay. That is okay. We expect that there will be some who gather who do not take the Lord's Supper. And if that's you, we are glad you're here. You are welcome here. We do not expect that everyone who gathers will take the Lord's Supper, and that's not a bad thing. Our heart is not at all to embarrass anyone, but to give these instructions because of the weight that Scripture places on rightly participating in the Lord's Supper. We as the elder team believe we are accountable to give these instructions to you, and everyone who gathers is accountable to receive these instructions. So, with these things in mind, during the first song, we are going to ask those who are partaking to come to the tables and get the elements and then hold on to them so that we can take them together after the first song. So if you are in the front part of the room, you can come to the front tables, the outer aisle, and return to your seat through the center aisle. If you are sitting behind that door, the side door there, in that back third of the room, you can go to the outer aisles to get the elements in the back table and then return, return to your seat through the center aisle. And so please do that quickly during the first song because then and hold on to them and then we will take them together after the first song. The night before his death, Jesus with his disciples instituted the Lord's Supper. We read in Matthew chapter 26 verses 26 through 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's partake together. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord.